Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Hit Different, my friends, boys, girls, men, women, however you identify, you are here. It's my voice in your ears. I'm joined today by Sose Fiamole. Two weeks in a row, baby. That's right. And a little fella called... What's so not? What's so not? Christopher John Emerson to his formerly uh, emo instead, I think. Yeah, well, that's just like a, that was like a nickname. I was like doing DJing under that name when I was, oh, what, like in 2012 or something. And then you leveled up and you became who you are today. You became the Voltron-esque, <laughs> one-man Voltron character. Uh, unreal. Coming up on this episode today, we're going to talk about collaborations, the good, the bad, and the Bieber. I'm just throwing Bieber under the bus. He's not so bad. Um, so say. We're going to be talking about how Tones and I just continues to stay winning and what it means for, you know, traditional or non-so-traditional methods of songwriting. Correct. And we're also going to be talking and going in depth with what's so not about his career since 2010. He's been throwing down and emerging from Flume's long shadow, long shadow for a medium to small size guy and just becoming, <laughs> becoming his own man and just, you know, ruling. Every time Killing I see her at a festival, we'll talk about that uh, incredible Run the Jewels collab as well, the remix, which is just oh, awesome. such a mega moment for you. I just pumped it on the, on, in the car on the way here. Like, I'm a 43-year-old man. I'm a bad boy. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> anyways, let's get into it. A bit of music. My co-host today. Yeah, we've done that bit. Good. Let's move on, friends. Let's get into it. Let's cut sick. Collaborations. I read yesterday, Kid Leroy and Justin Bieber are doing a collaboration. Boom. All of a sudden it's online. There's a teaser. Boom. There's a visionary, a vision, I've never said, <laughs> visionary clip. That's what it said today for the track. It's called Unstable. It's actually not a bad jam. It's mm. going to be a huge, huge hit. So we're sort of discussing, you know, what makes a good collaboration when they fail. Like, you know, Madonna and Britney did one a few years ago. No one can remember the name of that. Not so good. I remember sitting at Sonic Animation's house and they, they'd done a collaboration with John Toogood from She Had and everyone was sitting down to watch the clip and we sat there watching the clip to the song and everyone was like, yeah, yeah, great. And I was like, this, in my mind, I'm like, I'm not going to say anything, but this song isn't, it's just not very good. It's not, right. and it never went anywhere, you know, and that, that happens sometimes. It's just hard to sort of catch that lightning in the bottle. Mm. You know, what, let's just throw straight to you, um, Chris, what's mm-hmm. so not, because you've done a really quality, quality uh, collab with D Maze. Mm. Uh, tell us about making that and, and when you knew you had something sort of, you know, that kind of vintage breakbeat sound with a, a really nice sort of grey English day and somehow coming up with a really bright track. How did you manage to sort of pull it all together? I hadn't met the guys before and then we got linked up because we were all just sort of back in Australia because of COVID and everyone was just looking for things to do. We were all a bit restless, I think. And I think we really just captured that restless energy and I'd found a bunch of different packs and work and I've been using a lot of analog with all my time off I just actually got to spend some time in the studio usually I was just always on the road whatever I could carry my back that was pretty much it just had a few little toys and mainly inbox started really exploring sound a lot and exploring old school gear and sort of going back to even a lot of that rave culture and studying a bit of that and then uh, me and Johnny when we first got together just kind of hit it off on that mode and just went straight down that track and just using all the gear in his studio and 
I think after the first day, we were like, yeah, we've got something really good here. And I think we organized another day to get back together. And then he organized to get the rest of the band in to come and do something because we were very excited about where we were about to head with it. Hmm. And their, their voice and their style really does suit. Like the track's called The Change. It does suit that real ravey, you know, yeah. 4 a.m. That was the first thing that hit me. I was just like, yeah. this needs to be on a soundtrack to some, you know, like, yeah, British club movie or something like that, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, it really takes you back. Mm. Yeah. Blade 3, where, <laughs> where are the pingers? I, I think that their, their <laughs> style and tone can lead in that direction very easily. Um, just Johnny talked to me about it, is they love this style of production, but they are from band world and they don't traditionally head in that way. And um, Johnny's still studying and, and, and crafting, you know, a lot of his synthesis and stuff coming from more of a band background. But um, they're so excited by it. And even Mason showed me something he made that was just outrageous. Like it was, it was so close to just being something really exceptional and unusual. And it's really cool to hear people doing that and experimenting. I think, you know, this time off is allowed for that a lot more so than us just keeping the machine going and, and keeping everything moving and out on the road and touring, touring, touring. Totally. The Willaris K, he remixed two of their tracks as well and they did a, a, a smashing job, a bang-up job. I'm going to throw to you again. Firstly, uh, I spoke to Dizzy Rascal a few years ago and he was talking about how he was backstage with Calvin at a festival and they, you know, oh, let's do a track together. He's like, but you know, sometimes these things don't work out. And then anyway, that's a terrible dizzy. Thank you. <laughs> um, anyway, he, uh, he ended up like going back and forth with dance with me and would send it to Calvin. And apparently Calvin sent it back, I think twice and twice dizzy said, no, no, not good enough. We need this to really mm. pop in this part. And, what they end up coming up with is just an all-time classic. It mm. saved many, many uh, dance floors for me uh, in, in the time as, as, as me being a DJ as well. Have you had experiences where you've been collaborating and, say, with the guy from Toto, <laughs> or Skrillex, where you had to really put your foot down and say, and sort of park your ego or, or, or try and get everyone to park their egos to make a better a better song, in your opinion, when you've had pushback? Yeah, there's, there's always a dance, you know, of like, you have to like before I work with anyone I do like to go and get a meal with them or just hang out with them or like the, maybe the reason mm -hmm. you're working together is you hung out at an event or a club or something and you got to understand them a bit better because if you go in blind like you can just run into so many problems and you know everyone's artists there's, there's egos all about particularly in certain styles and um, certain ways that people have come up or, or you know how their careers are positioned at the moment it's just about resonating with someone and finding common ground and then trying to stay as close to that as you can and if you stay there then the egos don't really come into it yeah that was one thing um i was thinking about when mikey first was telling me this dizzy story you know like there there i do feel like there is some moments where you know you've got an artist who is linked up with a specific producer or a specific collaborator in a way that maybe isn't it doesn't come from the most organic of places you know yeah. we've we've seen it happen with um with many different pop moments in the past but it's really interesting because when you when you can hear that dynamic between the producer and the and the artist really kind of click in it just that's to me that's what certifies that track as a classic that's what will keep audiences coming back and with music particularly with the DMA's collab that you've done, mm. I feel like part of it is just that strong natural dynamic, you know. I feel like that's why it sounds so easy. That's why it kind of 
evokes those feelings of nostalgia that we've got with it as well. You know, it's it's got all the right elements in place at the right time. So it's really cool to 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 kind of hear you talk about the process because I feel like that's the sort of thing that can only really happen when we've got the time to to sort of focus in on it and we're not having all the outside noise and the outside opinions of 50 different people on a label kind of weighing in, you know? Yeah, I think that happens a lot in some spaces and not so much in others. Like if you start yeah. if you start playing the feature game, then you are like essentially a commercial or like a, a, a mechanical project where you're like, we're willing to spend this much to access this person and then they'll send you some inauthentic quickly rushed out mm-hmm. piece of work <laughs> that you paid you know multiple five figures for or more yeah so that you can level up your career and your status and your streaming but yeah in the middle 100%. there you've lost the art and and often it doesn't connect because it feels inauthentic and often like it doesn't go well because it's like it's on for that moment the names catch everybody's ear and then they realize it's, you know, it's sort of a half hour song and they sort of move on from it onto the next. And, and there's like a cycle of that that goes on. And then you're forever chasing the names to prop up your position and your project and your status and your tier and your, your billing and all of this stuff. But it just becomes this, this battle that takes you out of artistry and takes you into a sort of Definitely. A commercialized game. I can't wait. We'll dig into more of that later in your career, your mm. career discussion. Uh, <laughs> James Blake, I like it when, when unlikely collabs work really well. James Blake, Life Around Here, always an amazing track. And then through Chance the Rapper on there, cool clip of them just cruising through the forest kind of thing. It's just, I love it. It went really well. Interestingly, uh, in America, if you make the radio, that, that sort of plays into the charts as well. Okay. The charts are also judged on how much radio play you're getting. So when Hiatus Cody came out with Nakamara, huge, huge track. And they went up a level when they put Q-Tip on it, end up getting the first ever Australian band to be nominated for an R&B Grammy, like just startlingly good. Mm. But all of that has to go right. Like it all has to be very sort of tasteful and, and it has to, yeah, it has to catch on, it has to catch fire. So without that, you know, you kind of, you're stuffed. You kind of, yeah. I mean, at the moment, who do you reckon like Charlie XEX, maybe two years ago, maybe still now, you know, Miramasa, Icona mm. Pop, any Chuck Charlie XEX on anything and you were, you were sort of certified that it would go up. Who else do you reckon, guys? Ariana Grande. She's on a lot yep. of stuff. Yep. Charlie's interesting how she's a, she's an amazing writer and I love how she's positioned herself in her career and what she's chosen to do. She she went very – she did giant songs and then started working with Sophie doing the most unusual mm. crossover. Yeah. And then that mm, became a, a youthful movement of – yeah, everyone's into this PC music that has this giant pop crossover potential. It's unusual. That's what people like about it. And then now it's like, you know, hyperpop is like its whole own genre and it's really where a lot of young producer kids that grew up on, they grew up on EDM, they grew up on rap and they grew up on pop and they're sort of just throwing it all together in interesting ways. And uh, it's it's really cool to hear how all that's progressed. Coming up, so Sophia Molly reports in on how Tones and I is continuing to slay. Everywhere she looks, she just, just Kalishnikovs. <laughs> so say. Look, Tones and I, we get to a point with some artists who kind of 
burn really brightly super quickly and it almost feels like there's not much else to say. Shout out to the Galvatrons. Keep going. Exactly. Oh, wow. What a, what a throwback. I know. I'm not... I didn't, I didn't mean to sound mean. He's doing a video, video, <laughs> video game production now. He's doing well. I love it. Continue. Good, good for him. Love that for him. Um, anyway, Turns and I uh, stays consistently breaking records uh, everywhere she's been going. Um, she's also become uh, somewhat of a property mogul out on on the Mornington. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go from Mount Martha May Good. Bringing it, bringing it in. But her most uh, recent accomplishment, um, there was a report, I believe, musicbusinessworldwide.com, the official T. <laughs> she was the number one um, songwriter who on streaming services, period, last mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, all for that little Diddy Dance monkey. Mm-hmm. Billions, billions on billions and billions of streams. 2.2 billion streams on Spotify today. That's, 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 that's a double unicorn. It's like a double rainbow. That is just on one streaming service. Factor in Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube, like the the girl's been killing it. Um, so just for a bit of context, elsewhere on the list, she beat out Phineas, who's obviously been behind, you know, well, in partnership with Billie Eilish. She's beat out Drake. She's beat out Ed Sheeran, Louis Capaldi, Pop Smoke. Um, it's quite a diverse top ten. It's not just necessarily pop artists. You've got rappers. You've got kind of, I guess, yeah, pop adjacent. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's not strictly one genre, which I found really interesting. Mm. But yeah, so she's come out on top there. Um, obviously, they've had to use different algorithms and different, um, yeah, I guess, stat builders, stats builders to to kind of come up with this final list. Uh, the technology behind it is called Blocker. B-L-O-K-U-R, and I kind of got a bit nerdy with this. So how they dictated it, they um, built the ranking based not only on the popularity of each track, so that means how many times it's appeared in, you know, your global 100 playlists across, again, all the streaming services I mentioned before, but also the share of writing as well. So the theory behind this particular report is that a key factor in Tones and I nabbing that number one spot was the fact that she wrote that song 100% on her own. That's so interesting. Especially considering that's only in her first batch of music that she's ever released. It's she's, mental. She's playing it on Berg Street Mall, literally busking, you know, had that song yeah. in her arsenal. It's, and it's crazy. Your ears pricking up as you walk past and good on you know, Regan Lethbridge and Lemon Tree guys for just going, this is something, you know, we can make you this. you got to jump on it. Something else. So this, this idea of, you know, well, damn, you know, she's come out of nowhere, wrote this song. Um, obviously there are pressures to recreate that, which she kind of has done since. I'm not saying she's produced another Dance Monkey uh, to the T in terms of its successes, but you look at all of the music that she's put out since then, like, doing massive numbers, massive, massive numbers. So I guess my question to you guys is, you know, now that we're seeing the art of the collaboration sort of changing, some sometimes we're seeing it revert maybe towards a more traditional model, i.e. artist uh, and, co- you know, a small team of collaborate- collaborators or maybe just one. Do we think that's where music is heading now or do we feel like there's still a lot of stock in having a full room of writers, a full room of producers. Like, what do you guys reckon? We're definitely in the age of the collaboration, w- without a doubt. Um, what's your take, Chris? I think it depends what you're going for. And, like, 
from all accounts our friends that have worked with her she's she's a beast she gets in she she nails it she's really good which mm. is amazing because sometimes there's projects where you know there's marketing that says they do that and they don't but it was it was cool to hear that she legit does it you know and that i think plays into it as well there's like there's pop people that are just buying songs and then it's said that they have done the whole thing mm. and then they definitely have not and there's there's people <laughs> people taking percentages for doing the most obscure things on the record which is just a, a way of hiding that someone actually wrote the whole thing but someone else has to take the front of it so there's all kinds of things going on like that mm-hmm. i think if you're an amazing songwriter and you have a great voice and then you just work with a great producer you probably only need two people mm. i yeah. think like say say my project Sometimes I'll work with a friend on something. We'll just create something very weird and unusual. And then I'll have to sort of restudy my craft to break through a brick wall of like, I don't know what to do from here. I know this is very unusual, very on the edge of Mm -hmm. something sonically uh, challenging and new. And I don't know Mm -hmm. how to get to this next phase of it. And then I hear something in somebody else's work and I hit them up and be like, hey, do you want to jam with me on this thing? Because you're doing this thing and we're doing this thing and I think they can cross-pollinate here and become something and evolve totally in, into this whole new direction. But to mm. some degree, I think that's more of a uh, a dance music thing more so than a pop music thing because pop, you generally want to be simple uh, and it is really just about, like I think a, a, a lot of great songwriters have said, any big pop song, you should just be able to play a guitar and sing it and people get it. I get straight away, mm-hmm. but then and kids sing along to it, yeah, yeah. But then the, you know, dance music and all forms of it is about how the speaker pushes air, how that makes people behave, how the rhythms interact with each other, sure, mm. how the how the different sounds and noises do things to your mind and your body that you can't explain that send you into a frenzy and all this stuff. So it's a whole different mm-hmm. ball game. I like collaborating so much and with multiple people for that very reason. It's like. I don't have the skills in this particular field to make this song what it deserves to be. So I'm going to do my bit and then I'm going to work with someone who I know absolutely nails this. And then we elevate the song Mm -hmm. to something to a a place it never could have got to. And you create something that never would would have been possible as one person alone. Can you take us into a specific example of that? Uh, A good story about, you know, you going, hitting that brick wall and hitting up this person and what they brought to the particular track? Um, I could definitely tell you some unreleased (laughs) ones because they're all the ones at the foreground of my mind. But um, let me think if there's any release that have a good story like that. But you can give Um, us a hot scoop as well, Chris. You'd be like, there's an unreleased one I've done. uh... It won't make as much much sense though because like I'll be explaining things and there'll be no point of reference. But okay, I'll I'll use <laughs> the part. I'll use this unreleased one. I want to challenge everyone. That's the whole point, right? All right. So yeah. I I had an MS twenty, which is this analog synth, and I was doing this interesting technique that I just worked out, like right at that time, with it um, using using the filter resonance as an extra voice, and does all this crazy sort of sonic uh, disruption to the sound, saturation, compression, all that. So Real. recorded all these tones, like it's kind of like creating an artificial chord one at a time and then you lay them to create the chord progression but you record each chord singularly as like Mm -hmm. this manipulated version of a creating a chord and then uh the person i was with Mm -hmm. was like oh i've got a cool vocal idea over that so they did this cool vocal idea over that so then we've got this crazy sounding ms20 chord who is this person sorry to butt in but you have to tell us who this person was this youtuber called ramsoid if you've you've heard of him 
And he did this amazing vocal first take, very Kanye sort of uh, Jesus era sort of vibe. And so we got that and then we built that up into a drop. And then that sat on my computer for a while. And I was like, this is kind of cool. Not sure what to do with it. About 150 BPM. So just above that sort of trappy sort of tempo. And then about, I don't know, a year later, uh, this young Sydney producer, Tech Genesis, um, I was showing him a bunch of records and he heard that and he's like, oh, wow, I have some ideas for that. I'm like, oh, please, like, uh, you know, it's, it's a cool palette. It's, a, it's got some great songwriting going on, but I'm not sure what to do with it. And then he speeds it up. And then we turn it from like that 150 BPM up into almost a drum and bass kind of speed. So like way up another 25 BPM, which just suddenly changes the whole mood and the vibe and everything. And then he starts adding some interesting kind of growl noises and then this sort of hypersaturation, processing distortion, all these kinds of things. And suddenly the song has just shifted from here into this whole new production, just from bringing someone in, hearing it and, you know, just jamming on it together for an hour. And then I played that song for uh, Fila, who's a guy from Melbourne, uh, a, a young rapper, singer from Melbourne. And then he's delivered this insane pop top line on it with this auto-tune kind of <laughs> hyper-pop style. So now we've gone from this this analog Kanye kind of thing into this Kanye analog drum and bass kind of thing into this, you know, sort of male Charlie XCX Kanye hyper-pop Ooh. drum and bass song that's halftime. Like it's just evolved, 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 evolved by bringing these specialists in different fields. And I would never have seen it going on that trajectory if I hadn't just been sharing music with friends, playing songs, sharing concepts and ideas, and then just letting it naturally progress in that way. You just seem like a very generous cat as well. Like your whole vibe has always been, like for instance, uh, generous with your time, generous with advice. Alice Sky was telling me a story, she's backstage, and having a chat with somebody, this is a really nice guy. He's asking me lots of questions about my career. And then he said, all right, cool. I've just got to, I've got to go and just got to put your in-ears in. And it was you. And you walked out on stage and just rocked it to <laughs> many, many thousand people. And Alice, so not Alice Guy. Uh, Alice Ivy. Alice Ivy, excuse me. I interviewed Alice Guy this morning. Off topic. Uh, yeah, Alice <laughs> Ivy was like, wow. Like you did, not, not once did he say, oh, by the way, I'm what so not. I'm about to effing kill it over here. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, that's sweet. Just, I didn't even know that times, happened. Uh, that's cool. Your character, so. um, I'm going to ask you later. On. <laughs> oh, no. Very, very, very cool. Cool. See, there you go. Yeah. Bring people cool. together. That's, that's right. what we do. <laughs> See, if you just like that all the time. Yeah, yeah it's very good. I'm going to ask you later about, we're going to ask you later about whether you feel trapped by trap at times. Trapped uh, by trap. Trapped by trap. Yeah. <laughs> doing a trap by trap here with uh, Chris Emerson. Yes. Um, anything else I want to throw in about Tones and I? I mean, I just hope she just keeps going bigger and bigger and bigger and better and better and it's going to be interesting to see it with this sony fallout how well she's got a debut album coming right yeah and how how that will affect her or whether it won't affect her at all um it'll be one 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 less person yeah (laughs) one less ego to thank when she wins awards yeah that's the thing about her like when i was at the apras we go in son (laughs) we're going in um when I saw her at the apra awards in sydney earlier this year um she was at the, you know, with her team, mm-hmm. the fabulous lemon tree team mm-hmm. um, with the Sony table. And I, I did remember thinking to myself, I'm like, man, I hope that she keeps this team around her because I feel like she's the sort of talent who could easily get sort of chewed up. Mm, and, or scooped up by Elton John's management or something, you know. But Nothing wrong with that. In the, you know, in the way that sort of the, the pop industry, especially here, does – 
when they find something great, they'll chew them up and they'll mine them for it. But there's no structure around that artist to sort of support them when that inevitable so sort of to lull Gab- happens. No, that's what happened right? to her pretty but much. But just knowing the people around her, like they all tr- – and having seen them now together, they all go everywhere together. And I feel like that's something super important. And I feel like that's that sort of network of support that she has is possibly very integral mm. and crucial to how she's – kind of been developing so we'll see but I've, I've got no doubt that you know she's going to keep running up those numbers you know damn straight uh friends send a tip or story suggestion to podcast at mushroomgroup.com check the episode description for more ways to get in contact here we are chris emerson what's so not speaking from wa he is a touring. A bit of a, you're a bit of a road dog. You're a touring machine. He's probably most comfortable in my eyes in front of a festival crowd, just smashing out banger after banger with nuance. There's a real theatrical kind of element to your music, I think. Where I think your contemporaries like Hudson Mohawk, I listen and I don't get gripped in the same way. I feel like you have a few extra ideas that um that resonate with with me and with a lot of people, which is cool. Also, you're Australian, so we love you extra. <laughs> Tell us, though, take us back. So What So Not was originally 2010 and you were doing it with Flume. What was the moment mm-hmm. you reckon and you felt like you'd stepped out of Flume's shadow? For me, it was when I saw you play Coachella and George, brought George Maple out. I think that was the one. It's Coachella or Lollapalooza. I think it was Coachella. Yeah. And that was the moment when you were like, um, you're playing just Avelstein and it was just like, whoa, this guy's got it. Yeah. I think like I was pretty much doing the project for myself for quite a while um and that was it it depended how it appeared on the front face and how it was working behind the scenes and then it sort of came to a point i think end no start of 2015 when it was like all right there's some sort of separation about to happen there was it wasn't really clear exactly how or what that was technically going to roll through and then I think like two months later, I managed to get rid of the management I had and then was somewhat able to do things on my own for the project, which I'd been the front of and, you know, writing for and all of that and everything that had been happening for quite a while. And then I had that Coachella performance and I was like self-managed touring like all through America, all these dates in Europe, everything all lined up. I was finishing a bunch of songs off, premiering a bunch of music. And then, you know, I'm on stage there at three. I think the the first the first weekend, because it was two weekends at Coachella, there was like 18,000 people that rocked up at 3.30 in the afternoon, which was pretty big. And um, that no was... Big. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty big. It was pretty big. And, and the live stream was kind of a hit because I don't think I'd ever been hit up by so many people and had so much, um, I had so much, uh, what's it called? Like articles. And I, I just saw press just coming in from all these places. I'd never been in contact with or, and I'm there literally managing myself, like no PR rep, no, <laughs> like just like trying to manage this whole thing and organized all the performers, um, and the song, the, the vocalist on the EP that was about to come out to, like fly in and come do this performance and then there was so much heat and hype it seemed on that first weekend that when i came to do the set on the second weekend there was then thirty thousand people there at, built. at yeah. 3 30 so it 
nearly doubled from what people saw that first week to the next week. And then there's 15 of the biggest managers in the world behind me on stage, just all trying to like decide who's going to get a go at this. Yeah. That is hilarious. Take us to that moment, Andy, because of the, the grip and green. Hey, Chris, big fan. Loved you. Hey, Chris. <laughs> it was, you know, it was so the American. Grip and green. Tell us. Tell Love us you. But like, you know. Love all, your work. Yeah, it was it was cool. I, I went to America in 2014 for the first time and, and Skrillex really put me on. He was uh, my label at that point and he just became a good friend and just wanted to have me around a lot. And we just talked about music and just like talk about art a lot and ideas and how things worked. And I started to get a feel for the landscape of America and how to what like what was important to people in America because you know when you go to these different countries and you go into these niche kind of circles at first to grow and build and turn into something bigger you have to understand their history and you have to understand their culture Mm. and if you don't do that you're not going to resonate with people so I just started like you know I just live out of my backpack and have my laptop with me and I just go and stay in different communities of little people in these different towns and like get a feel of like what goes on there and go and just play some back-to-back sets at nightclubs with people and work with different musicians and, and all these different styles of people. And so, yeah, just sort of understand the landscape. And then by 2015, mm. it was just going. And then the next year, I, I did my first solo EP for the project, uh, which had records like Divide and Conquer and Loan and then some interludes that ended up mm. getting weirdly millions and millions of streams. <laughs> Even there's, this one, there's this one interlude. For, uh, there's an interlude from that EP that has like 15 million plays and it's like a two minute audio, like just a loop of like just instrumental pretty much. Um, Adieu, like goodbye in in French. Um, And then uh, the other thing I put out, the other thing I put out right at that time was just a bootleg I did of Rufus Innerbloom. And then that, of course, just sort of rocketed and became a very popular thing as well. I think got into like, it was one of the songs of the decade for Triple J in that Hottest 100 thing they did. And, mm. Um, mm. yeah, so, it, it you know, it was pretty special, I think, that period when it just started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think it, yeah. since that point, it probably tripled in size, you know. It just kept growing and growing and growing and then went on to do my debut album and then um, a few other records and, it's weird. It just has kept growing. Even when I've been uh, writing and not like putting out work, it still keeps mm. growing. Like even through COVID now, I'm getting called to be like the headliner of festivals, even though I haven't done anything new. <laughs> it's like people what, just, what? The, yeah. nos- the nostalgia has continued and then the growth in the youth has come well, in as well. It. And then it's all just, I don't know. It's It just feels nice too. It feels so organic and natural. There's no... There's yeah. no, like, bullshit in marketing with my project. It's just, like, I just make stuff that I love and I care about it and I put it out and people either love it or they don't. And um, mm. and I think that also connects and it's it's not, like, cheap tricks to get this fluffed up. No. It's, like, that's, that's what it is. This is it. It's here. Like, I hope you enjoy it. Um, I wanted to... To kind of throw it back to those uh, initial trips to the US because I... Um, I remember my first time going to the US, I guess, in some kind of professional capacity, that being, you know, reviewing festivals, doing shows over there, was 2014 as well. I think that was my first South By, and then I did like a Lolo tour that year as well. And, you know, kind of just, you know what it's like when you get 
those ones under your belt, you tend to get the get the hunger for it, and you you know you just start making pilgrimages back and forth each year. But it does it really did feel like around twenty fourteen to about twenty I want to say twenty sixteen we really did see that sort of birth of. Australian dance music and, and mm. producers really sort of happening in the US at the time. I mean, you, obviously you had yourself, Flume, Rufus, Dussault, or then still Rufus, um, at that point really kind of building up. And, you know, it felt like a real moment, especially to be like an Australian music fan, to, to see how an international audience was was really starting to gravitate to this new sound I always found it super interesting um, also kind of working outside of that scene here to, to sort of be an onlooker and, and to see how much electricity was sort of being formed by you guys out there was really special. And it really does come down to a lot of you guys, like you were saying, picking up and going over there, doing it off your own back um, and really sort of taking the initiative to push an individual sound over there. I, d- I really feel like that was a, you know, lightning in the bottle moment. Yeah, I think a, a lot of things allowed for that, and it was a bit of a it was a bit of a perfect storm. Like, let's start with Australia. So, we in Australia look outwards everywhere. I yep. would say artistically because we're so isolated, and mm-hmm. we don't have in colonial culture a long history of what we do so we look Mm -hmm. to what others do and try and build and combine that i think that's the ethos of australian art to some degree whereas definitely some other countries they're like this is what we do this is how we do it and and that's they're very bit what is it nationalist i guess about their style you know and they and they keep that perpetuating that and and they build that and it's very traditional and and it's awesome but we look outwards. So there's a mm. small crew of us here in Australia who were looking at Eats Everything, at Hudson Mohawk, at Rusty, at Jersey Club, at Ballet Funk, at all these different styles. And then we started just throwing it together. And the reason I think it happened for us and not people before was it was the first time that the technology was affordable for a kid. It was the first time you could buy a sure. laptop, you could get Ableton or Logic or Fruity Loops usually for free um, on like a 30-day trial. You just change your email every month. <laughs> and then and then you bought a couple of sample packs for like $50 each or got some friends to just send you a bunch of their sample packs. And then you use soft synths. You didn't have to, for the first time, you didn't have to buy analog gear. Like if you wanted this Moog bass, you could just download the sample and then put it in a simpler and it was done. You know, it just changed. And, and, and I think the, the why it had such a sound is because traditionally... Big label finds talented kid, tells them they need to be like this, they need to sound like this, you need to work with this producer, you need to work with this mix engineer. And then it just follows the same yeah. track it's followed for 20 years because those guys do it how they do it and they, they'll continue to do it how they've always done it unless they're forced to change. So what this did is this combined with MySpace, SoundCloud era, and then you have kids doing stuff they don't understand, doing it wrong, but then finding some beauty in that. And then instead of trying to get it signed and send it out to these people, they just put it online for free and it's online the next day. And then other kid in Russia and Belgium and wherever they are, hears that and be like, oh, that gives me an idea. And then they work away with their toys and their devices. And then they put something up three days later. 
and then someone else hears that and you just get this evolution of sound and everyone's just pushing mm. and pushing and pushing each other to grow into directions you didn't even think possible. And then that formed in Australia, this particular style and sound. And I remember when I tried to first get What's So Not singles, like songs signed to labels, they told me they'd never sign it because it would never work in nightclubs. And then, <laughs> I, and I was, and I was actually a DJ. Like I'd been touring around Australia to some degree and been playing in clubs for like three or four years, <laughs> maybe five years at that point. And I was like, amazing. I was like, I, I think I know where this okay. is about to go. <laughs> and then, yeah, I, I just started in like in mainstream clubs around Australia. I just started dropping these songs. Like I'd, I'd make these edits that would go from regular sort of house tempo music into these weird, wonky, bassy sort of things, and people would lose their shit. And then soon enough, you could play a whole set of that stuff and just mix it in with things that were a little more familiar and cut in and out of it. And then eventually the whole club circuit, I think within a year or two, just flipped like that. Like probably even a year, it just turned over and it was like, this is what kids listen to now. And then that Mm. just elevated everybody here. We all started working together and feeding off each other. And then America just wanted a piece of it. I remember those even when I was over there, there was agents that were just so thirsty to book the next Australian thing. They were like yeah. sending um, like agent A&Rs over here to just come and hunt. Where's Wave, Wave Racer? Where are you? Just hunt <laughs> yeah, for the next much. thing and just snap them up and get them locked in in case they happen to pop off. Like it was it was crazy. Mm. It's pretty cool that it's still happening globally. If you look at uh, the 19-year-old from Kazakhstan who, you know, uh, Beck, who remixed Roses, you know, just did it, popped it up and one of the biggest streaming – uh, songs on, on Spotify and such a great remix too. And it's just happened like what this nineteen year old unknown kid like. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty rad how it, it still continues. I'm going to ask you yeah, very shortly about you know what what it's like for a road dog to be sort of stuck in the kennel at the moment. Um, but first, <laughs> I want to ask you whether you feel trapped by trap and how you sort of bust out of that and how you sort of you know wake up in the morning and go I'm going to make a great track today no matter what no matter what genre without you know mm. falling into the tropes and falling into the you know a little bit of self doubt I think I got out of that in like 2013 <laughs> like mentally <laughs> really did you know it was funny because there was only one there was only one song by what's or not that I think really classified in that genre and then suddenly every press agent and article wanted to label us as that and we're like that's one song that's been done <laughs> and the Is rest of it i mean that's not really that genre it's just plays off it a bit it's so different like if you listen to what a trap or what a traditional trap song is it's it's not that it just has like the similar hats perhaps a similar drum pattern and that's about it nothing else about it is is in that field and i think if you showed that to someone who actually makes trap music like this isn't trap <laughs> i think i just really wanted to say trap, trap by, by trap, trap. <laughs> yeah. but like, going, look going. if i'm if i'm being really honest there was weird moments where i like i just didn't like dance music anymore because like in australia we created this thing that was fed off all these other amazing acts around the world and we built this thing up and then we took it somewhere and then everybody else started doing it in a different way that i didn't like so much i think a bunch of other people didn't like so much and then it became like, I guess, simplified and easier and there was less attention to the beauty of it and the strangeness of it and more of the functionality of it. And it became this functional version of it, like more commercially viable, more easily digestible. 
And then so I just stopped writing songs with beats and drops and just started writing songs and making things more like these giant experimental orchestral and cinematic builds that just had one payoff section or something and better off or worse. That's just what I wanted to do at the time. And uh, I think it's just what sort of life do you want to have? You know, do you want to do you want to just follow what will bring money and success or do you want to challenge yourself and do you want to you know do you want to do things that are going to make you happy and fulfilled and I'm so glad I chose that path because I know a lot of people that chose the other and they just they don't like themselves and they don't like their life interesting because I think of Calvin Harris the last five years or so maybe mm. three four years um and I think how can you be playing that music with the drop and and enjoy it you know what I mean and I'm not I'm just being very honest about my, my taste here, whereas the stuff he did with a bounce with Khalees, mm. that was heaps of fun and it was just that that had just enough of the dance stuff in it. But I look at people who do main stage of and and yeah, play that really cliche, like, fuck dude, are you you hear what you're dropping here? Like, is this yeah. really who you are? Um I, I find it hard to reconcile the person really authenticity. We can talk about authenticity all day long, but how you can sort of wake up in the morning and go, This is the song I really want to play tonight on stage. I, I think him as an example, he kind of made that sound. So I think for him it is authentic yeah. and it mm-hmm. is original. It's just everybody tried to copy him and didn't do as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, so I think for him. Well, can, yeah. And I, and I remember talking to a friend of his and he had asked, like, oh, how come you don't, like, do a new version of that for the show? And I think he said something like, because I made it right the first time. So I think he's just very, I think he's just very passionate and and very confident and he should be in how good the records are and like mm. they you know he's huge in every freaking country around the world like oh yeah you don't yeah, do yeah. that unless you you and he created that formula like he built something mm-hmm. he built a style and a sound and he's done many other different styles in the past like i'm sure you remember yeah which i obviously prefer yeah and then he's just like oh I know this is a smash. I'm going to make smashes. And then he just made, you know, mm-hmm. the smashes of all smashes consistently for, what, 10 years now? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> just like... <laughs> to his credit, you know, like, he, he wants to make people happy and he knows that this is what's going to make people really, really happy, so... I think he was one of the last people I saw before everything went to, to crap. That was incredible. He did that funk album as well. Which yeah, was totally left field so good. and still worked as big as everything else. And then he did that rave <laughs> album at the start of COVID. He's kind of toying with us at this point, I think. He's like, oh, I can, yeah. I can, <laughs> I can do whatever I want. <laughs> do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Uh, last question before we, if you, do you want to stick around and do a bonus episode with us after where we talk about music yeah. we were into as a, as a kid? And yeah, sick. Awesome. All right. Last question though is um, as a, as a bit of a, a road dog person who loves touring, person who loves just you know eating up that main stage spot in a very kind of giving and, and compassionate way. I will say, uh, how does it feel to sort of be not touring at the moment and not being able to play to clubs and, and that feeling of uh, stagnancy? Um, there was there was definitely uh, some positives and some negatives. Um, I think with everything, like on the being on the road is fucking hard. It's really hard. Like, uh, I think, I, you know, I talk to flight attendants more than I talk to anyone because they're around me more than anybody else. And I come to some pretty scary, <laughs> scary conclusions. Like, I fly more than a flight attendant, and that's not what I'm being paid for. 
So, like, how much of my life is just yeah going between wow. planes? Like, just there's one aspect of it. Just think about that. That's a great quote. And then consider a few other things, like, I'm expected to finish music while I'm between two or three flights a day and a minivan, and then I'm trying to run a team of 60 people um, around the world you know, different time zones, make sure creative mm. things are being finished, built so that people can move on to their aspect of finishing. So you got like, you got like, you're creating music videos or visualizers or you're building light shows, mm. you're building, you're, you're mixing the, the sound for a, a mixtape, you're working through with the sound engineer for how they mixed a show that's going to go online and stream somewhere, you're building your own show. You know, there's just so many aspects of so many things and you're trying to write songs, be creative, you're trying to have a life and like still speak to your mom and your family and you, you, there's just so mm. many things it, and and you'd never get to sleep. You, I think sleep on tour, unless you're on a bus tour, it's like mm. you get three hours a night sleep and then you just have to try and make up the rest um, wherever you can. And then you're expected to just be smiling and on at all times as well. Like it's, it's brutal. <laughs> but I found ways of enjoying that. I found ways of making that a really nice life and it was just taking opportunities like a really good example i'll give is i had to do a red-eye flight to europe to do a couple of shows and instead of just landing at 8 a.m and wallowing in my hotel room feeling shitty i instead booked another flight to go to a little island to rent a car to drive to the other side of the island because i saw there was a wind pattern coming down and realized there was going to be surf <laughs> off this island so then i go surfing oh. all day and then i drive back and then i get the little flight back to where my hotel is and then I go to sleep at night that and then I wake shit. up and I play the show that the next awesome. day. So like, that's how I chose to live my life on tour is like, take every opportunity who gets to go into 42 countries a year for their work. Like I'm going to mm. just go mm. and see everything I can do everything I can. And the other part is something I touched on earlier is like being invited into these little micro communities of like the cool kids in town. Like, Oh, this is the record store mm. we go to. This is the food we go and eat. This is the type of, uh, events we like to go and see this is the art we go and look at these are our friends exhibitions like you would never be able to find this stuff you couldn't even oh, find it online it's just like age. you go into the local region and the local show you what's up and then one really cool thing i realized is if all of these little micro communities are showing the same signs it shows you where culture and trend is going before it gets there mm. like years mm. before Big like time. You'll, you'll see if there's a common thread, you're like, oh, wow, this thing's about to go. I'm going to start to understand this more. I'm going to incorporate this, involve this in my work because I'm really excited about it as well and all these people are excited about it too. Mm -hmm. um, now, contrary to that is that was the thing I missed when COVID hit and I was stuck somewhere. I missed that constant excitement, exhilaration, that being having doors open for me into these worlds I didn't even know existed. I lost that. But then I found mm -hmm. something else, and that was because of all this travel. That was like most of my career. I was just moving, 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 and I didn't get to sit in a studio. The bad studios, you need to really know the room. So every time you change studios, you're changing the room, and you, you imagine like your zero point shifts, and you have to constantly try and find your zero point to know truth in music. Like, what does this mean when this is mm -hmm. translated on stage? What does this sound like? How does this affect people? Is this too clouded? Or is there just some resonance in this room that's bouncing around that's tricking me? So you've got to find zero. And I could never do that when I was on the road, mm. right? I just didn't have the time in the same space. It wasn't possible. And that's what I got through COVID 
So one, I lived in Newcastle for the first nine months of it at a friend's house and it was just endless amounts of analog gear. Like it was just this musical playhouse and I was just in love with like 16 hour days sitting there toying, tweaking. The only time I took breaks was to go surfing. So I'd just be surfing and then, you know, 12 to 16 hours in the studio and sleep, wake up, same thing Best every day, ever. nine months. Mental. And then the next phase of it was touring started to some degree back here in Australia. I moved to Perth because that was the, the most open state and I would not miss yeah. a gig. If, if I start here, I can always get in to do a show. And then the only issue is maybe sure. getting back. I got a quarantine. So, uh, and then Shock One, who's a drum and bass producer, amazing, has this incredible studio here. And he has a family. So he would let me use the studios, the studio on weekends, on Monday when he teaches, and then every single night when he goes home to his kids and his wife, or his, um, his girlfriend. And I would like isolate in the studio if everyone was like back home with their families for five days as a lockdown i'm just sleeping on the floor there on a on a like rock climbing mat and just working 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 and this room was different because <laughs> this room was like perfectly treated like an incredible sonic space and so the first part of covid i just elevated my understanding of um, analog synthesis and musicality i would say also working with my amazing friends in that house who are other musicians as well and then um mm. And then the next part of COVID was studying sound design, Sonic, and like, how hard can you push this before it's too much? How does this feel when you crank this up yeah. to a volume like you would hear at a festival or a club? Like, how does this impact your body? Mm -hmm. And just all kinds of things like that, like total parallels, the two, the two pe no, tiers of, of music creation. Yeah. Mm. So that was, that was how I didn't Very go insane. Sick. Yeah, yeah, all that sounds insane in the good way. Thanks to our co-hosts, Sir Sophia Moley and Mr. Christopher Emerson. What's so not? Absolute cold-blooded killer. Mm -hmm.